What we see here is we see Jesus meets Mary, and he meets her in three different ways. First, we see that he meets her where she is. Second, he meets her in love. And third, he meets her on mission. He meets her where she is, verses 11 through 14, meets her in love in verses 15 and 16, and finally meets her on mission in verses 17 through 18. So first, where she is. Here at the very beginning, we kind of get this context set that Mary is here at the tomb. She's weeping. You hear it four different times in this story. It talks about how much she's weeping. So John wants to make sure she's crying. She's crying a lot. She's here outside the tomb, and she encounters two angels. Now, she's crying so much that look at her response was to the angels. Verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting there at the body of Jesus, had lain, one at the head, one at the foot. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, they've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they've laid him. She seems entirely unimpressed. Now, you look throughout the rest of the Bible, anytime people encounter angels, they're fearful, they fall, they're worried about what they're going to encounter. In the other Gospels, we see that these angels had stark white clothing, white like lightning, and Mary's just like, listen, just if you've, if you've taken the body, let me know. That's, uh, that's what I'm here. I'm looking for Jesus. And she moves on, and she sees then there's this person behind her, uh, and they, uh, once again, we see that it's Jesus as he comes to where she is, but she didn't know that it was him. She didn't recognize him. We see this in a few different encounters that people see the risen Christ and they don't immediately recognize him. And whether or not that's because of her grief, whether or not it's her tears, whether or not early that morning outside the tomb that there was a fog and she couldn't exactly make out who it was, we don't know. But we see Jesus come to her in the midst of where she is. And this is one thing that we see as people are asking Mary over and over again, why are you weeping? It's almost like ripping a Band-Aid off the grief. Right? I don't know if you've ever been in that moment where something just feels like it's wrong, broken, you're in so much pain, someone comes and asks you, what's wrong? And you have to then relive all of those emotions. You stir all those back up. It reminds me in college when I was walking one time to the shuttle, and I saw this girl that I knew, Courtney, walking towards me. She looked a little bit distraught, so I just felt like the common human dignity thing to do was just say, like, Courtney, how are you doing? And typically, we're passing each other, we're on our way to class. You would think the response would be, oh, you know, I'm okay, whatever. And then you go on. But I said, Courtney, how are you doing? And she breaks down in tears. I don't have a clue what to say at that point. I was like, oh, something's wrong. I've got to go to class. So sorry. Uh, It completely caught me off guard that she completely opened up, began to cry, began to talk through. She'd just broken up with her boyfriend. It was a bad experience. More of the story, we see here the angels asking a similar question. Mary, why are you weeping? And it's ripping that wound off her heart. My Lord has been crucified, and I don't know where he is. And Jesus comes exactly where she is in that emotion. He comes and meets her there. He doesn't wait for her to get her grief figured out and come to her. He goes and meets her there. This is part of wrapped up in the mission statement of who we are at Grace is we want to help people take their next steps towards Christ. And what that means is that means that no matter where you are, we want to come right there in that moment. That we don't have the expectation that you have to get your life together, have read through the entire Bible, memorize most of it, and can be able to spout off correct answers and have your life seemingly all together before walking into this church. This church is a place for messed up people because that's every single one of us. You're either messed up or you're lying. Those are your two options. 
Let's be honest. We've all got issues. We've all got baggage. And one of the beautiful things about Christianity is we see Jesus meets us where we are. When we turn and we trust in him, we believe in him, we actually then begin to be freed up to not be okay. Because we see that our approval is not based on our performance. It's based on Christ's finished work. So when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see your mistakes or your shortcomings. He sees the perfect life of Christ that has been given to you. And all of a sudden then, you're able to be honest about your shortcomings. You're able to be honest about your baggage. And here at Grace, we want this to be a place where it's okay to not be okay. Because this is the reality of where we see Jesus meeting people, where they are. And so it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. So this is one of the beautiful things about community that God has given us. A gospel community is transparent and honest about the times in which we fall short and the ways that we are imperfect. But in our imperfections, we come along and we help each other stumble more, stumble closer to Jesus. And so Jesus here first meets Mary where she is in the midst of her grief, not waiting for her to come to him. He comes to her. But secondly, we see that he comes to her in love, in love, in verses 15 through 16. So when Jesus gets there, he asks her a couple questions. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, these two questions on the front, Mary probably took that to me, and this is probably just a guy, more than likely the gardener, that's just asking me, what's wrong and what am I looking for? But on the other side of it, as Mary got back and she began to remember those two questions, she probably saw them in a different light. Because Jesus could have come in that moment and gone, Mary, what's your deal? Listen, you've been following me now for a couple years. I've been talking about this. You remember the whole, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again thing? We've been through this. I died, the tomb is empty, put two and two together and stop being a moron. Jesus could have said that. Because Mary was just forgetting what Jesus had been saying throughout his public ministry. But he didn't. Jesus came in gentleness. He came in love. And in love, he questioned her and said, Why are you weeping and whom are you seeking? And on the other side of that, as Mary was remembering those questions, she then saw not just kind of factual um, uh, questions, just trying to figure out what was wrong with her, but instead seeing a mild rebuke and a gentle correction. As Jesus came, he said, woman, why are you weeping? This is part of my plan. I have known and predestined every single minute that this was happening. I've laid my life down, and I've now taken it back up again. This was part of the plan from the very beginning of eternity for this to happen. Remember Genesis 3? Remember Genesis 15? This had to happen. The serpent's head was crushed, but my heel had to be bruised. When God walked through uh, those animals that were ripped apart in Genesis 15 and made a covenant with Abraham, he said, let what happened to these animals happen to me when this covenant is broken. And so my body had to be broken. My blood had to be shed. This had to happen. Why are you weeping? This is part of the story. And now we're to the part where I have conquered death and conquered sin. Why are you, weep why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? But you see, Mary had a, a misdirected view of who Jesus was. She saw him as this great and powerful spiritual teacher. This man that she followed, that she saw him do miracles. But when he died, she thought that he had died. And that was the end of the story. 
And Jesus asked her, whom are you seeking? This Jesus that you have concocted in your mind or the real Jesus? The one whom the entire scriptures have been pointing towards and my entire public ministry have been building to this moment. Whom are you seeking, me or someone made up in your own imagination? You see, Mary's grief was founded in a wrong view of who Jesus is and how she is to relate to him. If she had remembered the teachings of Jesus and the promises that he had made, she wouldn't have been weeping in this moment. She would have just been waiting, waiting for that third day. But instead, she forgot. And it can be easy for us to sit back in the year 2018, read this story and go, Mary, how could you have forgotten that? It's easy for us to stand above the Bible and read about the idiots all through these pages and go, man, these guys were morons. But listen to me. I've said this before. I want to make sure we understand it. Part of the reason why these morons are here is to help our own moronic lives. Because we look and we may say, how could you forget? I can guarantee you right now, if Mary Magdalene's in heaven and is looking down on your life, she is probably saying, how in the world could you forget? As day after day, we shift our focus from God. We begin to insert our own lives back into the center of the universe as though we, uh, everything around us orbits around us rather than having God at the center. And what I can tell you is that for Mary, her grief was founded in a wrong view of who Jesus is and how she is to relate to him. I can promise you that the majority of grief and anxiety and worry in your life is wrapped up in a wrong view of who God is and how you are to relate to him. As we read and we begin to go through our lives and we've experienced different problems with anxiety and with worry, with grief, there are, there are real situations in which grief is there, which God has told us that we are to weep. We see Jesus weep. But there are a lot of instances in our lives when anxiety, worry, and grief well up in our hearts, and it's because we've forgotten who God is and what he's promised to us. We worry about our futures. We worry about our families. We worry about our jobs. We worry about what tomorrow may hold. We get wrapped up in the things of this world. And God is saying, remember, you're not at the center of this universe. I am. You can't hold together with your gravity all the pieces around you. If you try to, it will fall apart. I'm the only one that can do that for you. The only one powerful enough. That even whenever things begin to crumble, when I'm at the center, I can still hold that together and turn it for your good and for my glory. You cannot. It reminds me of, listen, I'm just going to go ahead and warn you. Over the next month, there's probably going to be an inordinate amount of Marvel movie illustrations with the Avengers movie coming up. So just spoiler alert, it's going to happen. So I was watching Guardians of the Galaxy the other day, kind of getting prepped for the Avengers coming up. Got my ticket already purchased. IMAX at Regal Point at 11 o'clock on opening night. I cannot wait. Anyway, I was watching Guardians of the Galaxy, and the whole storyline throughout all of the Marvel Cinematic Universe since 2008 when Iron Man was released all the way up to this movie has been building up with this kind of story. There are a bunch of different stories, but there's just one thread throughout the whole uh, of the movies about these things called Infinity Stones. And that's what this next movie is going to be all about, the Infinity War, for who's going to get the different stones. There's six of them. And we don't know where the sixth one is. We'll see. Maybe it's going to be revealed in this movie. Who knows? But in Guardians of the Galaxy, we see this one uh, stone finally revealed called the Power Stone. 
And we get this little background about the power stone and how different people have been able to wield it for uh, their own use. But he makes the point that only creatures or people of extraordinary power can wield it. If anyone lesser or ordinary tries and comes to hold it, they will self-destruct. And in the scene as he's talking about it, the guy that's explaining all of this to the guardians of the galaxy, he owns this slave who's been oppressed her whole life, and she sees this power stone, and she hears him talking about how maybe she can finally grab this and free herself. So as the power stone's there, she runs up and grabs it to be able to then free herself from this slavery. But as he had said, she was just an ordinary person, and as she grabbed it in a matter of about a minute or so, she turned entirely purple and exploded. Didn't work out well for her. Spoiler alert, also, Guardians of the Galaxy, if you haven't seen it. And the reality is, is that for us, it's true just as much for us, that whenever we try to grab a hold of our lives and every detail and moment of our lives, friends, you will not be able to hold it. You will self-destruct. That there will be things that are flying around us that we cannot hold in place because we are not powerful enough to be able to control them. But when we place God in the center of our lives and he grabs a hold of it and we have him there, we then begin to rightly see ourselves not as standing above our lives controlling every moment of it, but underneath our king who is sovereign and has complete control over every moment. And he can hold this thing together so that even in moments of incredible grief, we come underneath him in tears and say, we don't know why this is happening. This is the result of the brokenness of sin that has entered into this world. But I can trust you because I know that you work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. That we can be, as the Bible says, sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. It's one of the things I love about the Bible. It's incredibly honest about the human condition. It doesn't try to just swipe away the difficulties of life. It says it's there. You will feel injustice. You will feel discrimination. You will feel pain. And you will feel brokenness. But in the midst of it, there is hope for you. If you come and you trust me, and that hope is founded in this empty tomb. As we come and we encounter Jesus, he comes And often in those moments of our grief and anxiety and worry, we can hear him asking us these same questions. Why are you weeping? Why are you worried? Why are you anxious? Whom are you seeking? What are you seeking to try to fulfill you? If you come to me, the real me, then you will have your tears wiped away and you will find hope that you've never found before. So Jesus asks her these questions as a gentle rebuke and a mild correction to try to reshift. Who are you searching for? And I love this next part. It says that Mary, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Now, it's a weird detail, right? Supposing him to be the gardener. But if you've been with us any in the last few weeks, you, we've seen this theme pop up a few different times. In John 18, 19, and now in 20, John refers to the garden four different times in these chapters. Jesus was betrayed in a garden. He was crucified and resurrected in a garden. And here now in 20, Mary just supposes him to be a gardener. Now, why would he be so particular about putting these words in here about being a gardener? Because one of the realities is is that we have to understand John was written in a much different time than our, our time today. 
Right, so you don't just have bloggers on the internet being able to just write whatever they want to. It's just easy. Oh, you can delete it. You can erase it. You can tweet it out. It's easy. In this time, every single word mattered because you are dipping in ink. You are writing. You are then copying uh, those different manuscripts. It took time. And so every word in here mattered. There's no just superfluous word here. So John puts this in for a reason, supposing him to be the gardener. And all through 18, 19, and 20, he's getting us in this image here on this weekend in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised again. On this weekend in Jerusalem that the entire Bible hinges on, he wants this image of a garden to be right here in the center. As John is using this language throughout uh, his gospel that brings us back to Genesis, It should be no surprise then as we get to this point of a garden that John is trying to get our minds back to the first garden and the Garden of Eden. And you have this creation of man and you have God dwelling with his people perfectly. There's no sin, there's no death, there's no separation. And God's command to Adam in Genesis 2.15 is to work and keep the garden. So Adam was commanded to be the world's first gardener. That was his role there in the garden, to have dominion, to work, and to keep. But Adam failed. Adam turned, rebelled against God, and his sin in that moment when Adam and Eve fell, sin and brokenness and death entered into this world for the first time and have now, Paul writes in Romans 5, spread to all people because all have sinned. And so because of one man's disobedience, then sin and death spread to everyone in this first garden. But John is saying, but now here in the second garden, we have a better gardener, one who will work and keep the garden better than Adam. And through his one act of obedience and his death, then come life to all those who follow him in his name. And there's this comparison between Adam and Jesus. Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Romans 5. As he compares the two, and he's saying, here in Jesus, we have a true and better Adam who has come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law in which we stand. Jesus is here, Mary just seeing him as maybe the gardener. She was more right than she knew that he was there tending the garden in a way in which Adam never could. And he had come to begin to usher us back into that garden. And we see in Revelation 21, 22, that the city that comes down sounds a lot like a garden, and that's where we're headed. And so the garden is issued back in here as Mary just supposes him to be a gardener. But then she returns to him and says, well, Jesus, sir, if, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Now, this is at the very height now of Mary's grief, of her sadness. She's now had these two angels say, why are you weeping? Jesus comes and says, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She says, sir, if you've carried him away. Notice that she doesn't even say Jesus. At this point, she's just talking to this guy going, listen, if you've taken him away, just tell me where you've laid him. There's almost this kind of numb exasperation in her voice. Just tell me where you've laid him. And in the midst, in the height of her grief, Jesus comes and he responds, Mary just says her name. And at once, she turned and she knew who he was. And we see, just like throughout John, as we see this good shepherd say that my sheep will know me and I will call them by name. Here, we see the good shepherd calling his sheep by name. In love 
and in tenderness and in affection. And it's important for some of you to know that Jesus has never changed. This is who he is for all of eternity. That he is one that in the midst of grief, for those who follows him, he meets his people in love and in tenderness and in affection. He knows your name and he calls you by name. This is the heart of God. And at once, when he heard her name, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. So she comes and she falls at his feet. She clings to him. She knows finally, okay, this is the risen Christ. He has now raised again from the dead. He's not in the tomb. No one has taken him away. He stands here in front of me. And it shifts now into this weird response from Jesus in verse 17 as Jesus now meets her on mission. As Jesus meets her on mission, he says to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Isn't that a weird thing to say? Right In this moment, this height of emotional response, Mary, fearing that her Savior had been killed, her Lord had been crucified and taken, now she sees him. There's this emotional moment. She comes and falls at his feet, and Jesus' response is, do not cling to me. Why? Because I have not yet ascended to the Father. It's, it's weird, right? It's just weird. Jesus often throughout John, it's like, man, just like some social cues would be helpful. Like, just like let the moment happen. But he is God. He can do what he wants to. And in this moment, we see him tell her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So I'll be honest, the, exactly what that means, we don't, exa- we don't entirely know. Um, D.A. Carson said this is one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament to understand. Here's my jab at it, though, is that in this moment, Mary comes And she has now had her grief turned upside down. Her friend, her teacher, her Lord is now right here in front of her. And she runs and she clings to him like everything now is finished and fine. And Jesus' response is, okay, hold on. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that we're back now, but you need to understand this isn't the end. I need to, again, make sure you understand this isn't the end of the story. I still have work to do. I still have to go and ascend to the Father, be seated at the right hand of God, intercede for my people, and send my spirit. This isn't the end of the story. This moment can happen later, whenever you see me again. But right now, I've still got work to do, and you still have work to do. Jesus immediately puts this moment in the context of his mission that God had sent him on, to go and redeem people, to go and save those who had run away from him. And so, yes, he's been crucified. He's now risen, but he still has to ascend. He still has to go and be seated to be able to intercede for those who are his. And so he reminds her, hey, listen, don't cling to me. I've not yet finished my work. And then he turns. He says, not only is this not the end of my story, it's not the end of your story. So he says, this is my mission. I have to still go ascend to the Father. But you, you go to my brothers and you say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. And so immediately, not only does Jesus say, no, I still have work to do, he then turns to Mary and says, now you've got work to do. And he sends her on mission to go and to say, to go and announce. And this is at the very heart of what is Christianity. Mary encounters Jesus, and she's then told to tell other people about that encounter. You go and tell others what you have heard. Friends, this is at the very heart of what evangelism is. It's encountering Jesus 
in all of his beauty and satisfaction as he meets the deepest desires of our hearts. And in that moment, then we go then and tell others what we have experienced. 